Welcome back for another episode of Comics Over Time, a podcast where we take a trip through the history of Marvel Comics with a focus on some of the important and interesting comic stories that inspired the Hollywood blockbusters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Every two weeks, we take a look at a batch of comics and then watch the related MCU movie or TV show. Then when, after we're done, we connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures and try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best, the books or the screen adaptation? My name is Dwayne, and with me is my good buddy Dan. As always, great to see you, my man. Hey there, Dwayne. Good to be back for another comic discussion. Looking forward to this one. Going to be an uninteresting show, I think. So, Yes. I I was not familiar with Ultron at all before seeing the Avengers movie way back in 2015. And this week we're taking a look at some comics to get get re-prepared for that experience next week. Absolutely. We're going to actually go all the way back to the 60s, 1968, in fact, for a quick look at how the uh, the character called Ultron 5 first entered into the Marvel Universe. And then after that, we're going to zoom forward to 2013 when our old friend Brian Michael Bendis returning yet again. Uh, if it seems like he writes everything, it's because for a while he did actually write <laughs> everything. He did, yeah. But he's going to show us why it's very important to keep an eye on technological progress especially if you happen to accidentally create, say, villainous and nearly indestructible artificial intelligence bent on the eradication of the human race. All right, but first we do have some comic book news to go through. And Dan, you've got a note here about the dawn of DC. What, what, what did you see and what do you want to talk about with regards to that? So I don't know if I mentioned this before, uh, at least in passing, but I... We're starting to get more news on it, so I wanted to give an actual kind of shout-out to folks who might be interested in this. Every once in a while, the DC Universe tends to just sort of blow itself up and then start over again, kind of from scratch. And they continue the numbering on some <laughs> books, but a lot of them they actually just cancel, and then they start over, right? And that's yeah. what they're doing again. Okay. So Dawn of DC is starting this in spring like they're starting to solicit in the um in the previews catalogs and stuff for these books now they're going to fold out a lot of the existing uh storylines they're going to reboot the universe in some fundamental ways restart a bunch of series and then usually when they do this their hope is that that's a jumping on point for people so uh, we actually got a quote from jim lee about this and and kind of the donna dc and he says that after the near multiverse ending events of Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, and DC Universe Lazarus Planet, which are a couple things they did this last year, the DC Universe will be heading toward the light with brand new series and story arcs from some of the top creative members in comics. Dawn of DC is one of our most ambitious initiatives ever and is a chance for us to tell bigger and bolder stories across our line. So... Nobody really knows what all this is going to mean yet, but usually it means that people are either going to really love the next few months of DC Comics or really hate the next few months of DC Comics. <laughs> I would imagine so. It, this seems like something that could be rather polarizing. And in general, most people who are invested are frustrated because the characters they've come to sort of 
no and the the status quo as it is gets blown up but yeah we're, we're getting relatively used to that whole idea of anytime you you hear about a a crisis in the dc comics it's a it's a bad time for pretty much everybody who's in that universe and they've had probably three or four of them now and they almost all result in a reboot to the universe sure sure okay well that does sound like really interesting so it's something to keep tabs on in, in the coming months yep and if for some reason you've been interested in getting into dc comics maybe didn't want to try and get into current storylines or whatever it does provide that easier jumping on point at least than there would have normally been so right uh Speaking of upcoming storylines, Marvel has announced a Captain America versus Captain America event coming up this spring uh, that looks really interesting called Captain America Cold War. And when I say Captain America versus Captain America, it is what you think it is. It is a battle that will pit Steve Rogers versus Sam Wilson fighting for the right to lead as America's symbol of liberty and or truth. Uh, seems really interesting, in it, and that's actually a four-part event that's going to occur within the existing comic book runs, which is uh, Steve Rogers as Captain America in Captain America Sentinel of Liberty and Sam Wilson's Captain America Symbol of Truth. So starting in April, those the first two parts will appear in each of those two magazines, and then uh, in May, the Three, parts three and four will get wrapped up in those same uh, comic stories. So it, it's not a separate comic book. It is just an event, a four-part crossover across two months in two existing titles. But um, hmm. yeah, it, it seems seems really interesting. There's going to be a nice, cool kind of Cold War logo on the... On the uh, they, they've got covers for the April issues, and so you know that it's part of that Cold War crossover but um what do you think about sam wilson versus or versus steve rogers this this they're they're touting it as something like 80 years uh in the making sort of thing like a um really important in the history of captain america i don't know i mean i really i really enjoy the fact that for most of this time those guys have been friends so the, the idea that they would get into a big fight about who gets to be Captain America actually strikes me as kind of odd. And so we'll see how this all works out. I, I do think it's inevitable from a publishing standpoint that having two characters named Captain America and these really unwieldy titles they have probably wasn't going to last forever. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. Well, we'll see. I, I would assume, though, that yeah. as the next Captain America movie is Sam Wilson, they've got to keep him somewhere near that title. So we'll see. We'll see if the comics just diverge completely from the MCU or if they keep kind of tracking towards it. Right, right, right. Uh, finally, we've got a recommendation from you this week. Yeah, what with a recommendation that's a little different than normal. I've actually been um I've been having some some issues with Twitter. I've been kind of starting to move away from that platform because mm. it seems like yeah. my feed has less and less stuff every day 
that I actually am interested in. And I don't have one of the paid blue checks. Uh, and so engagement and visibility on my posts just seems to be way lower than last year. I'm getting a lot less sort of interaction from people who aren't already followers and stuff like that. And one thing I've found now is that I've started posting over at a website called League of Comic Geeks. And I really like both that site and the community over there. Uh, I'm on that as Lumini, same handle that I have on Twitter. And this has been a great place not only for posting longer form comic reviews, but also for keeping track of your comic purchases and your collection if you want. So the link's in the show notes. It's someplace that uh, if you're interested in that, it is uh, kind of an interesting site. They've got a real good database of comics if you want to be able to, to go and look things up. And like I said, what I really like about it when I started there was because it lets me put in all the books that I've ordered after I order them, and then they show up in my pull list the week that they're coming out, so I know what I'm going to get when I go to the comic store. So I think we'll have the link in the show notes down there, so head on out, take a look at it, and come on in and join me uh, if, uh, if you happen to find it useful. Yeah, I've looked at it a little bit uh, when you brought it up a month or two ago, and... Uh, mm-hmm. It's nice, nice to see that that is working. I, I should probably look into doing a thing a little bit more in there because it, it does seem like a, a really cool resource to, to, to use. All right, let's jump in and let's talk about the stack for this week. Dan, what is what books were we reviewing? So what we're looking at essentially is two separate ages of Ultron. We're going to have the the first Ultron books from the 60s. He began in the Avengers, uh, actually with a cameo appearance, uh, kind of under a hood in Avengers 54, which we're not looking at. But then Avengers 55 was the first appearance of Ultron. And then Avengers 57 and 58, which are really important books in the history of the Marvel Universe, because... Issue 57 was the first appearance of the Vision. And then 58 was sort of the origin story of Ultron and still to a bit Vision. Because 58 is the uh, can an android cry issue that's the one where um, where Vision actually joins the Avengers. So really big books in Marvel history and kind of cool that we get to read them here. And then we're going to skip ahead to 2013 and read... The series of comics that has the same name as the actual movie we're going to be watching next week, which is Age of Ultron, right? And I think you'll be interested to see that everything is not in a name because these are very different stories, despite the fact that they come out about the same time and they have the the same, you know, title. Liberties were taken during the adaptation. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Yes, yes, you could you could definitely say that. So I think I've got an idea of why we picked these books for this week. You, you did a pretty good job of explaining that with the stack. So before we dive in and actually talk about some of the books, we usually do a creator profile during our during our comic book uh, episodes. Who are we profiling this week? So when we started looking through some of the books, I wanted to kind of find somebody who maybe folks hadn't heard of, but that they should have. And the guy that I came up with, actually, 
is somebody where if you decide to dig into sort of classic issues of Marvel Comics from the 1960s and 70s or even later, you're almost certainly going to eventually run across the name John Buscema. Over the course of a career that spanned something like half a century, Buscema drew comics and did commercial art for numerous studios and companies. He is most famous, though, for a long-time association with Marvel. He's penciled nearly every Marvel hero and most major Marvel titles at some point in his career. To me, though, he's most remembered, like in my mind when I think of John Buscema, I think of two things. His Silver Surfer run, in terms of the Silver Surfer number one comic book. He'd appeared first off back in Fantastic Four, so of course Kirby and Lee created the Surfer. But in terms mm -hmm. of his own comic book and kind of the, uh, the aesthetic that created, Buscema was really the one who worked with Lee on a lot of that. And then whenever he drew Conan, and he drew a lot of Conan, it just always seemed to me to be the classic. This is what Conan looks like to me. And, and I loved some sure. of the earlier Conan, like Barry Windsor Smith Conan's uh, from the early issues are, are some of my favorite. But I have to admit that John Bassena just looks like the Conan artist. His art was so perfect for Marvel because it's sort of exaggerated and dynamic like Kirby's, but he's got this really fine draftsmanship and sort of greater control and, and detail. Um, also like Kirby, he was an absolute art machine because he would be able to pencil like two complete issues every month, which most people, that's like 40 or 50 pages wow. of art. Most people cannot do that sort of thing. Work became so linked with Marvel at a certain point that there was actually a book they put out called How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. And John Buscema was the guy who drew that, that illustrated comic guide. So quite literally, <laughs> wow. John Buscema's style was Marvel style for most of the 70s. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. Really influential and popular guide to comic art. I had one when I was a kid. Uh, very cool book. It's also interesting because Marvel was kind of a family business for the Buscemas. His little brother, Sal, actually drew a bunch of books in the 70s and the 80s as well and had a long career as a Marvel artist. So... For us this week, this all corresponds because we are going to get lucky enough to see about three issues of Basima's work in the early Avengers books that we're going to be reading here with Vision and Ultron. I, yeah, I when I was looking through the notes and saw saw the name, I I actually recognized it from from the books this week. So I'm like, yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, let's let's dive in. Let's talk about Avengers Volume One. We're looking at issues fifty-five, fifty-seven, and fifty-eight. Dan, tell us a little yep. bit about uh, about those books, and then and then we'll dive into a recap, talking about what happened in those books. Absolutely. So what's interesting, first off, is that uh, when we kind of go through and and list who the actual creators were. On the books of this time, the, the top listed creator is the editor, which is Stan Lee, which is kind of <laughs> ridiculous because now editor is like this thing very much at the bottom that we don't even bother to normally list during our credits. But the, the top right. name in the credits was the editor, Stan Lee. It's written by Roy Thomas, 
penciled by John Basema, inked by George Klein, and lettered by Sam Rosen. At this point, colorists were not actually credited in the comics. So if you go out on some of the websites, there are attempts to sort of link who color them, or, or some people have gone back and, and tried to figure it out. But in terms of actually the, the credits in the comics themselves, the colorer is not listed. So when we start out with these, though, and we're going to actually look at 55, and then we're going to look at 57 and 58. I'll give you a quick idea of what's going on with 56, but well, when we're pretty much skipping. So 55 picks us up in mid-story. In 54, the Avengers had gotten in a big fight with somebody called the Crimson Cowl, and they were actually taken captive by the Cowl and his team of supervillain henchmen. Crimson Cowl then loads all of these unconscious Avengers into a hydrogen bomb, which he then intends uh, that he's going to take up into the air above New York City and hold the city hostage. And ransom. <laughs> hold them for ransom. And he's like, either they'll pay it or, you know, and, and whatever. Or if they don't, we're going to take the bomb out over the ocean and explode all the Avengers, and then I still win anyways. So... He's got quite the yeah. plan. While he's <laughs> yeah. monologuing and talking to Jarvis and everything, he actually reveals himself to be a robot, Ultron 5, the living automaton. And the Avengers actually end up being saved by Jarvis and the Black Knight. They round up the Claw, Whirlwind, Radioactive Man, and the Melter, who'd all been helping Ultron. But unfortunately, even though his plan is foiled, Ultron himself gets away and swears to strike again in an even more deadly way in the future. So there's 55, right? We get to see yeah. him. We get to kind of get a little bit of a a, a a turn from him, but we don't really learn much about him. 56, then, is a diversion. It's actually also a pretty famous issue, but it deals with Captain America's past and sort of Bucky and things like this. Interesting issue, but completely not something to do with what we're talking about, so we're going to skip over that one. And then in 57, they circle back again with the introduction of the Vision. Now, the Vision is also kind of a robot-type character, right? When he comes in, though, first, he attacks the Wasp, uh, so he's immediately doing kind of a, a villain turn when he comes in. Just as he's about to kill her, he collapses and he's taken to Avengers Mansion where they are going to examine him. And they find out that he's actually what they call a synthesoid. Uh, and a synthesoid is, is, is essentially completely humanoid, like a human being with all the organs and everything else, just made of inorganic material. Right? right. Mm. How this works is never really explained <laughs> at all. No, it's not. No. So... After waking up, uh, while they're examining him, he kind of attacks the whole team. And they eventually have to subdue him, at which point they find out he's been sent by Ultron, who's actually the one who created the Vision with a specific mission of destroying the Avengers. Eventually, the Vision turns on Ultron and then helps the Avengers defeat and destroy him. Issue 58 then sort of completes Vision's origin story. Uh, it also shows how... The experiments that Hank Pym were doing on Dragon Man back probably 20 or 30 issues ago, I think it was issue 21, 25, something like that, had actually been the period where Ultron was created. And he had actually only created Ultron 1, 
who is this robot that sort of immediately went from being childish to sort of full-on evil in the space of just a few minutes after he became conscious. The robot zapped Pym repeatedly, erased his creator's memory, and then left to, as he called it, finish the task of his own flawless creation. So Pym is blamed for making Ultron, but it's very obvious from all of this, he just made the very first iteration, but he made him as a robot that could think to better himself. So Ultron has now made Ultron 2, Ultron 3, Ultron 4, and finally Ultron 5, at which point he thinks he's ready to take on the Avengers. Yes. There you go. And so these, with, are, these and, are the stories. Yeah, and and I was going to say, with the help of some of the, uh, you know, re- relatively well-known, I think, uh, you know, villains that they that some of these Avenger characters have been dealing with, like Ulysses Claw and, and Whirlwind and Radioactive Man, uh, with their help, they do kind of get in a situation where it's not actually looking all that good that they're going to be able to survive. And, and, and it's, and it's really weird. Like let's, let's dive in and let's talk about this because the whole episode or the whole issue kind of leading up to the reveal in 55, that this is Ultron is the crimson cowl. We had this misdirect that occurred earlier, like in issue 54, where Everyone thought it was Jarvis, the Avengers kind of butler that had had that that was actually the Crimson Cowl and was the one that had set up mm-hmm. the Avengers. And and it was it was really interesting, I think, just how that ended up coming to pass, because it's like. One, it's like, how did how would like the butler end up doing it in this case? And then two. The fact that it's not the butler and that it's this like automaton is completely mm-hmm. crazy. And and yet it really is kind of the butler because yeah. when it comes down to it, he actually has betrayed the team because he took the blueprints of Avengers Mansion and have sold them to the Crimson Cowl and these other folks so that they can get in and attack them. And his only answer to this is he's so confident that they would just beat up these guys that he's like, you know, I need money to help my mom who needs a surgery. And I figured this was really kind of a a victimless crime, essentially, right? Uh So, and he gets away with it. They're like, yeah, fine. Yeah. So, um, what I like about these is we've read a number of 1960s Marvel books. And I think this is the most positive reaction I've heard from you out of any group of old school Marvel that we've ever read. Maybe, probably. It was an interesting story, I think, more than anything else. Even though we kind of die bombed into the middle of it, um, it, it's still just these three books I thought were were really kind of interesting and kind of fun. And and I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it. If I was like a kid in the in the late 60s. And and I get this, I'm like I probably be like, wow, this is this is pretty cool. I did not I did not see this coming in the slightest. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. You know, these were these were fun. They had interesting stuff going on. It's obviously a, a lot of the the interactions and stuff like that are just 
pure melodrama. And, you know, today yeah. if something happened like what Jarvis did, you'd, you'd have a year of people sitting around moaning about betrayals and he'd, he'd have to face all sorts of real world consequences and everything. So it's very different in that way. But I think that these stories were written really well. They moved fast. The art's good. The dialogue's good. There's a lot of interesting development that goes on. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed these a lot. I think, I think they hold up pretty well overall uh, into, into the modern day. Yeah, there, there's definitely some, some of the kind of stereotypical ways they, that they handled uh, Jan, the wasp, when she's getting attacked and, and the, like the interactions before Hank leaves and some of the comments that are made to the Black Panther, T'Challa, not exactly the, 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 the most racially sensitive, I, I think. So there's some of that in here, but by and large, if you're, if you're looking at older stories, a lot of those stories don't tend to hit because they seem a little too ridiculous and a little too campy and a little too just dumb, I have to say. I'm, no offense, mm-hmm. but it, it it felt like it was written for a kid audience, right? And and now this this felt well enough, developed enough that that like as an adult I can enjoy this that, that it that it that it spanned kind of the audience of you know a kid could like this, but also you know somebody somebody older could like this as well. That's actually, I mean, one of the things that Marvel really changed sort of the game with in the 60s. One of the things that Stan Lee started to realize was that as of 1961-62 when they started bringing out Fantastic Four, everybody believes that superhero comics, Marvel comics, are intended for an audience that's probably 8 to 12, 13 years old, primarily. Like, you know, young teenagers or preteen kids, usually boys. And right. what they started to find and what they started to really lean into in the mid to late 60s was that on college campuses all over America, Marvel Comics were starting to be something that really were popular. They were getting a lot of, of letters from college kids. Lee was being invited to speak on college campuses. And so things like, you know, the Silver Surfer, a lot of the sort of storylines that are coming out at this time... They're trying to skew them to an audience that's a little bit more grown up than what they had before, while still definitely keeping it kid-friendly, right? But I, yeah. I do think it's interesting some of the things that you start to see here. You know, there are, with like the AI and creating this creature and everything else, there's some things in there that kind of could get a person asking some questions and thinking about technology and the role of technology and exactly how bright are all of these super geniuses in the marvel universe if they go about creating stuff like this you know bringing so yeah so do you want to talk about i i think we have to talk about hank pym and and his creation of ultron because and and we see Mm -hmm. at least in these books he doesn't necessarily have a a good understanding of what has happened and how this Ultron has come to be 
this Ultron 5 that is trying to kill the Avengers, right? Yeah, and, and that really continues for him, you know, all the way. If you if you think about even the the Ultimates books that we read a while ago, where, you know, Hank Pym ends up getting in all sorts of trouble and he gets himself beaten up by Captain America and whatever. He's a screw-up through most of the history of the Marvel Universe. He's a brilliant uh. guy who constantly makes questionable decisions and also who's never really able to find, you know, a a way to really differentiate himself from everybody else. He's always switching around to different identities because he's Ant-Man, he's Giant Man, he's Yellow Jacket. You know, he's got all these different things and he's, he's just somebody who never really seems to be able to get it figured out. I think it's interesting to look at how different... And we'll get to this in the next one. But keep in mind, in the Marvel Universe, one of the defining things about Hank Pym is he's the guy who just about destroyed the world multiple times because he's the, the father of Ultron. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he doesn't exist at this point. No. No, he and doesn't. And so when you're watching the movie, think about how different, how, how, how much he gets away with like all of the weight that comes off his shoulders in the MCU that he has to deal with in the regular Marvel universe. So, but yeah, Hank Pym is, is a character that has really had quite a history. You know, there's also the fact that later on there will be a, an issue where he actually, um, he, he's in his lab and Jan says something and he slaps her. Yeah. I I remember that. Yeah. He's like, he seems like he's kind of a drunk and, and he's yep. quick to anger and, and he's like domestic yep. violence against Jan. And it's, yeah, it's not yep. great. He creates, he creates a terrible, a terrible monster. He's a domestic abuser. He is really just not a good character. He's, he's in many ways an unsalvageable character in the Marvel, Marvel universe itself for a long time. They almost just sort of, swept him under the rug and said, let's find ourselves a new Ant-Man, which is where all the new Ant-Man came from. And Hank Pym was just sort of gotten rid of because Jan left him and everything else. So it is interesting going back into these books, though, and seeing him as kind of that sort of sympathetic screw-up. You know, he's he's someone who, to be quite frank, you're surprised isn't a supervillain. Because he, he acts like one of the geniuses... Who ends up turning into a supervillain, like one of these guys who makes a, a crazy formula, Doc Ock, and then goes nuts and, and turns into a villain. And yet for the most part right. he stays on the on the Avengers side, even though he's always causing trouble. Never really intentionally, you know, but yeah. You met, you mentioned the uh, the last page of issue fifty eight being a, a rather iconic picture of of Vision crying. These he after basically getting invited to join uh, or having his application accepted to join the Avengers. You know they basically say that you know it's he doesn't have to be a man to be an Avenger. It's it's the measure of 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 the character and like it's not it's more than you know 
what his superpowers are and that sort of thing. And, you know, he ends up demonstrating them while in the issue fighting against other members of the Avengers and all this. But yeah, he, he seems stoic when he gets the message and then he's like, I need to walk away for a minute, goes in the other room. And then you see a full, full page panel of him uh, crying, which was, which I feel like even though I'm, I'm not a comic book reader, I think I've seen that before. The, the even an Android can cry page is duplicated many places. It's one of the iconic images of the vision. And it's probably one of John Basema's most famous pages that he's ever created. So I, I really enjoyed the vision when I was a kid. I thought it was an interesting character. The fact that basically Marvel just throws up his hands and admits, we don't even know how to explain to you what the vision is. But the fact that he is, he's an android, he's synthetic, but he can cry. Does he have, why does he have tear ducts? Why does he have, is he crying? Right. What is, uh-huh. you know, how, how is he crying? Because even if he could, even if he physically can cry, where's the water? Why is there water in, a, in an android? That's going to be a problem, right? So, yeah, yeah I, I do though find him just fascinating. One other thing, you note he's got the little red jewel in his forehead. Yes. That is nothing in the comics to start with. It's just like a little like a costume adornment or something. Whereas later on, it obviously becomes an infinity stone. So Sure. Yeah. It's it's interesting that it, it like... We find out that Ultron created the Vision, and, and basically he's like, he didn't even give him the name Vision. By the way, in this, we find out he ba- Ultron basically says, "You are a slave. You do what I want you to do. You have no other purpose or any other reason for existing besides this. I'm not even giving you a name." And like the the comment about Vision, or like the name Vision almost kind of comes up because 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 the wasp uh jan says says he's like this terrible vision or something as as she comes Mm -hmm. as he comes in and and tries to attack her it's it's actually kind of crazy yep and that's one of the interesting parts about it as well is you've got these two sort of post-human intelligences and ultron just can't really understand that vision would side with him or that he would not take orders or whatever and that really is where his where his downfall comes from is that the vision just at a certain point says i think i'm gonna hang out with these guys instead and help them you know decapitate you the only other thing i would say by the way is that i do think that the fact that you've got both an evil ai and you've got a nuclear bomb kind of being, you know, hung as a, a sort of Damocles over New York shows that a lot of these comics from the 60s really were tapping into sort of these fears about technology and fears about the future. One of the things about Marvel Comics, when you read them, is they were very much about sort of the wonders of a, a modern world and a modern future. But technology and science was also something that was always causing trouble if you weren't careful with it. You know, 
and uh, and this mm-hmm. is really Ultron is one of the best examples of how they were thinking about this way before a lot of people were you know right this idea of essentially what happens when because a lot of folks were not thinking in terms that that like thomas was of we can't understand the vision because as soon as we built a robot that was smarter than people we can no no longer understand the stuff that he built. And that's kind of crazy. But even then, 50 years ago, they had that baked into sort of their idea of Ultron and the Vision. So I really liked these books. I think there's there was, as with a lot of it, a lot of room for story to grow off of these. Which yeah, I guess takes I w- us to I would the agree. fact that uh, 50 years later, they built some story off it. So maybe we should uh, take a look at those other ones. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about these books before we move on? Nope. Nope. Let's, let's move on to Age of Ultron from 2013. Sure. So these, Age of Ultron was a 10-issue series. There was an 11th book that was kind of a coda. And then there also were a number of tie-in books. But the... The main series, you can just read 1 through 10, which is what we're going to talk about today, and it gets you pretty much where you need to be. Publication year started in 2013, written by Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, first issue was penciled by Hitch, uh, Brian Hitch and inked by Paul Neary. Later on, there were a number of different pencilers. Brandon Peterson did a bunch of it. A few other people were involved. Paul Neary also had the bulk of the inking, but had a number of other people helped him. Uh, letters was Corey Petit for pretty much the entire series. And the colorist was Paul Mounts, as well as a number of other people at times. So this was a series they wanted to make sure that they got out on time. And so for a lot of the flashback scenes and stuff, because this was a timey-wimey series that went back and forth in time. <laughs> yes. Some of those in the future or in the past were were drawn by or colored by different people to help them keep on schedule. So, you ready for a recap? Yeah, let's let's talk about this because there's there's a lot that goes on in ten issues here. Yeah, yeah, there is, but we'll try and get through it. So, things actually start out really quickly here, uh, and they start out really bleak. Uh, Hawkeye begins the series searching a devastated New York. He saves Spider-Man from a bunch of second-rate villains and a fleet of Ultron robots and then returns to a group of heroes that are hiding out in the rubble under the city. Ultron has attacked and in the space of a few days has killed most of Earth's heroes as well as a large percentage of the human population. The She-Hulk and Luke Cage infiltrate uh, Ultron's, um, I guess you'd call it, sort of lair. It's this big area in the middle of New York. And they find out that Um, Ultron has actually gone forward in time and is now controlling the Vision and using him to carry out his plan. Heroes from all over the globe head to Nick Fury's secret sanctuary in this savage land uh, where Nick Fury is actually waiting for them. Within this sanctuary, he has a seemingly endless supply of gadgets and stolen (laughs) or borrowed super weaponry, uh, including, among other things, one of Victor Von Doom's time platforms. 
At this point, they decide they've got to find a way to fix this through time. Fury leads a team into the future to take on Ultron there, while Wolverine heads the other way with the intention of killing Hank Pym before he can create Ultron in the first place. Sue Storm actually goes back with Wolverine, intending to stop him, but at the last minute she lets him kill Pym, after which they head back to the present to see what's changed. This may have been a decent idea, at least in theory, by the way, because it appears that Fury and the team that went into the future was completely destroyed by a massive pile of Ultrons uh, as they were attempting to do their thing. In any case, when Wolverine and Sue Storm get back to, the, to their present, they see that quite a lot has changed. Multiple alien invasions have now occurred over the last 20 years or so. Uh, and in this new timeline, Tony Stark has actually lost most of his body. The Avengers are no more. They've been replaced by the Defenders. Morgan Le Fay and her magical forces have actually won out against Stark and modern technology. It's a pretty bleak world that they've come back to as well. So things did not, yeah. things did not exactly get great. Wolverine sees that his actions haven't made, uh, have maybe made things worse, or at the very least haven't made them better. So he time hops again, after being specifically warned to not by Iron Man, because he says, you could break everything. Time is this living thing. You can't just jump around like that. In any case, Wolverine goes back. He talks himself out of killing Pym, and then they work together to implement a plan to put a time-release virus into Ultron which prevents him from destroying the world later while leaving everything leading up to the Age of Ultron unchanged. At that point, Pym sends himself a video message sending how to, uh, telling him how to save the day. The Avengers take down Ultron just as he awakes, and all seems well. Or at least it seems that way until Pym and Stark realize that Wolverine actually broke the time-space continuum with his actions, and all sorts of things are fracturing all over the galaxy. But as they say, that's a tale for another day. So. Actually, do you recognize yeah, that's, that's... this lead-in, by the way? It's a, it's a tale for yesterday, technically. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, we, we, see, we see Angela at the end of the, uh, of the book 10. And I guess I'm not mm -hmm. real familiar with Angela or what that means exactly. But um, it seemed like a pretty big event was about to happen. Do you remember Guardians 2013? Where yes. they were trying to fix all of those weird time rifts with like the church and the church right. ran into one? Those books right. come immediately afterwards. And it's about two books after where we stopped reading the 2013 series that Angela jumps directly into that timeline from these books. Oh. So these okay. actually dovetail almost exactly into the books that we were reading a couple of weeks ago from Guardians of the Galaxy. Sure. There we go. That that's so. cool. That's that's in it I, I guess I could or should have put that together given given the, the time frame in which those books came out. The Guardians books and these, but and yeah, I guess it does make sense now that you can tie those that there is yeah, they describe them they describe them differently though yeah yeah they describe yeah. them differently though so it's not necessarily like you would have would have gotten it just from the context there but sure. i read ahead a little bit more because i was enjoying those books and so i'm like oh yeah this all kind of circles back now so right so what did you think of these books Dwayne? 
So I, I actually really have enjoyed the Brian Michael Bendis books that I have read so far, and I would include this series as one of those sets of books that I, that I really enjoyed. This this was a very very well done story. It 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 spoke to me. It was quick to read. It was it, it had enough action and enough story and the the time travel aspect of it. I'm not a big fan of time travel. We've I, I think we've talked about this before, but I, I I love the fact that basically they went back to try and change time and then they made it worse, which to me feels like that should be the case anytime you go back in time to try and fix something that you think is broken. And um, there was just, there was just a lot of really interesting things about these books. Not the least of which I think the first idea that I kind of, I kind of think about is I think about the making of Ultron and the idea behind Ultron was not necessarily the worst idea in the world. Hank Pym's original idea was that basically humans were not going to be able to kind of figure out all the things that they need to figure out in order to really evolve as as a species, that we were going to get in our own way and that that there should be this AI that could learn from mistakes and improve upon itself and assist us in the betterment of humanity. And, and like, it was real. And I, and I, I like that idea insofar as I think it's an interesting idea. I think that, you know, a lot of people, when they think about what AI can do, they, a lot of times posit that this is the sort of thing that, that, that AI could do, but it's weird to me that it's like, it gets, the Ultron got really wise, really quickly that humans are kind of this terrible race and that the only way to basically save Earth is to, to eradicate all the humans on it. Like, almost immediately. Like like you said, within a matter of minutes of coming to sentient life. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't take them long to figure out where the problem. And uh, I do think that it is, it's interesting because technology does have all these strengths, but one of the problems, you know, like the new Oppenheimer movie that's coming out, right? That whole idea, right. and they even they even reference it in the trailer, that there were some people who are like, we don't know if we're going to blow up the entire atmosphere when we do this. You know, will the will the chain reaction stop? And the scientists are like, yeah, we think it'll stop, but they didn't really know necessarily. And there there's a whole right. point through this series where. Even when they talk about, well, why don't we go back and just tell Pym not to create Ultron because terrible things will happen. And Wolverine's like, you can't tell people like him that. He'll just go, well, no, I just need to fix it. And I'll just make it yeah, better. I, and I'm, smarter, be better. I'm smart enough not to make yep. that mistake, right? Exactly. And, and so he's like, no, you just got to kill him because if he's alive, he's curious enough. Eventually he's going to make the mistake that we can't afford to have him make. So yeah, I, I think that it was really, it was really well done with sort of the idea that Pim is not the villain in this piece. He's no. just a guy who makes a, makes a terrible error that can destroy the world. 
you know? Right. Yeah. It, it, and to me, that I think is what really made this, this interesting. And, and like, it was, it, it, that the kind of the whole idea of what to do with Hank Pym and what to do with the creation of Ultron is ultimately kind of the big question. It, it is, it is the, can you, can you stop Hitler by going back in time and killing him as a baby sort of, sort of scenario played out. And it's like, nope. It's it's really interesting because some of those sort of thought experiments, I think, are really interesting. And and the fact that they're kind of delving into that idea in a comic book series is, I I think, makes for really and a really interesting read. It also is interesting that there is a sort of implied commentary there when they do go into the deep future and... Nick Fury and Iron Man and everyone land in that future. The Earth looks great. Yeah. Like everything's lush and it's all good. And the Earth has actually been returned to a healthy, you know, place. Earth is much happier and better off without human beings. It's pretty yes. obvious. Now, that doesn't mean we're better off without being. <laughs> no. But that the problem is that Ultron was not technically wrong either in that human beings are a danger to themselves and the planet and we find out at the end as well with wolverine's decision to go back and change time twice the way he did human beings are also a threat to the galaxy because somebody on earth decided to open up a time rift that just about ate the entire universe yeah which also ticked off some of the other galactic races. Let me tell you, they're not very happy. So No, I suppose not. So there was a, rather, a, a lot of death and a rather dystopian look at like current and future time uh, throughout this that I thought was, was really interesting. You know, you had the basically most of humanity has been destroyed. The few heroes that are left are hiding in the underground. You know, I remember the very first, the, the last panel of the very first issue, you, you basically, they're like, who's, who's Hawkeye brings Spider-Man back. Who's in charge here basically. And, and they, they all kind of point at cap and cap is kind of down in the like almost fetal position because he doesn't know what to do. Yep. He's like, this is this is a scenario that I am not prepared for. I don't know how to lead us out of this. And event he he is a shell of himself at the start of this series. And eventually, you know, he kind of comes to and, and starts to kind of lead them again, kind of with the help of Nick Fury once they get to the Savage Lands. But but you know, that was kind of crazy to see that you know you have she-hulk and luke cage basically die as they're they're attempting to figure out what ultron is doing uh you know cage basically dies like right in front of them and and it and is conveying kind of as his final moments that ultron's not actually here that he's in the future and that he is controlled kind of a partially destroyed version of vision in the central of, of New York that they're currently in and that it wouldn't do them any good to basically try and fight Ultron here because he's not here. Yep. 
It was very yep. bleak. Yeah, and and I think it's interesting because to an extent, Age of Ultron is kind of a play for those of us who've been reading Marvel for a while on Age of Apocalypse, which was a series from a decade or so before where an X-Men villain called Apocalypse essentially took over everything and we get a super bleak future where it's all a disaster and all that. And there are so many Marvel universes where everything is just tragically bad and only yeah. a very few where things are good. So, you know, pretty much all of the X-Men futures that you see are terrible. There's so many, so many bad things going on there. A lot of the things we see in the future when Kang's doing stuff, etc. So it's not that unusual. But it is one thing that I've always found difficult because it's hard to really celebrate the win with comic books like this. Because somewhere in the sure. back of my head, I'm like, you know, all those billions of people still suffered and died. Yes, you're going to go back and rewrite history and so now they won't remember it again, but all of that still happened, right? It just then got rewrote by another timeline or something like this. And it's still just this horrifically bleak look at human nature and and kind of the world. And it shows the, the knife's edge on which we are, you know, kind of living living this acceptable timeline. And you slip just a little bit and, oh, robots have killed everybody, yeah. you know? So yeah. I I do I'm I'm a little bit tired of the dystopian and the the massive uh damage damage sorts of comics. If more than a couple million people or a billion people die, how do the heroes really save the day in a way that makes you wanna celebrate that? You know? It's just kind of exhausting. So yeah. I, you know, I had not even considered that. That is, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of bleak. <laughs> like these comics, almost. Um, mm -hmm. Let's talk about Nick Fury, because apparently he's got a safe house everywhere, including Antarctica, which is where the Savage Lands are. And boy, does he got the toys. Yeah, Fury is always prepared for everything, it seems. Where other people, you know, Cap had not planned for this eventuality. Fury is immediately like, oh, robot apocalypse. Time to get down to my Sophos and start preparing, right? The company will be here soon and I need to be ready. So right. he had everything. He's got like, you know, Ares axe and he, so he's got he's got armor from Iron Man and he's got god weapons and he's got time portals and it's all just hanging out down <laughs> yep. there. So yeah. I I did not realize the Savage Lands was in Antarctica. And so that oh, yeah. was because yeah, we're 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 actually in the middle of the Savage Lands event in Marvel Snap, and I did not realize that's that that's where that was. So that was that was kind of fun and interesting uh, little tidbit that I that I wasn't aware of. So, do you know what the Savage Lands are now, actually? Not entirely. I just so know where the they're thing. located exactly. So, yeah, basically, what it it is, it's a jungle, right? Like a tropical prehistoric jungle. 
meaning uh-huh. that it's a place with dinosaurs and right. it's a place with all of this sort of stuff. And it's hidden away in, in Antarctica. Kazar is one of the characters who's there pretty regularly. Shanna is there pretty regularly. And the X-Men and a lot of other characters have flown down there and kind of just had adventures and the like. It's interesting because both Marvel and DC have a place like this. Because the, in DC it's called like Skartara or something. It's the place where the Warlord goes where there's actually like a hole in the north or north or south pole that allows you to go down into the center of the earth and then there's this prehistoric jungle kind of area. Or with the um, with Marvel, it's more like there's just these weird mountains and, and some sort of thing that hides it. And then there's this valley of the Savage Land. So, yeah, so they go up there and things are hidden. And it's weird because everybody seems to know about the Savage Land, but it's this secret place. So <laughs> the heroes all know <laughs> how to get there. So, yeah, yeah. It's oh, like wow. part of their welcome packet when they when they when they enlist with Nick Fury. He's like, "Here's here's a list of some of my safe houses. Nope. You ever need Seems to go like somewhere?" The case. Is... Yeah, it's just nuts. So I we talked a little bit about the Wolverine breaking time. They basically, yeah, he he is explicitly told I, no less than two times not to basically go in. And, and kill Hank, him, or or to go back and redo it once it it doesn't work right the first time, and well, it's not like it's like out of character. It's sort of just it's sort of like infuriating to watch it be like, yeah, of course Wolverine's gonna be like, I know better than Captain America. I know better than Tony Stark. I'm just gonna go ahead and do the thing I'm going to do regardless of how reckless it might be and i haven't really thought through the plan necessarily and you know shocker it ends up causing additional problems even when they do sort of fix the the problem of ultron wolverine is a blunt weapon right and he always has been <laughs> that's that's kind of yeah. the thing is that he he knows that there's something wrong and he sees one solution to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the interesting thing is that later on, Iron Man sort of says, hey, you know, there would be this other option, but we don't want to try that either. And then that gives him the ability to go back the second time and say, okay, this time I'm not just going to slaughter you. I'm going to give you an idea and we're going to make sure everything stays the same up until a point or whatever. But his initial... His initial theory is billions of people are dying. We take out one guy and they all live. This is simple math. And yeah, I, I think that makes sense for Wolverine as a character. Um, it also is interesting to me the way that Sue Storm comes along. And, you know, she's there kind of hiding along. She comes to stop him. And then when it comes right down to it, you know, she's lost her husband because... Mr. Fantastic's dead. I think the kids are dead. I believe the thing is dead. Yeah. So she's lost her whole family yeah. to this. And in the end, when it comes time where she's got to stop him, she just doesn't. Because she's also willing to take a chance that this is going to fix it. 
Yeah, she's she's telling him not to right up until the point where he basically has the claws to Hank, Hank's throat, and and can like either do it or not do it. And ultimately, she just sort of doesn't say anything, and he just finishes off Hank Pym, and and you're like, okay, I don't know why you spent the last you know. 12 pages yep. tell it, telling Wolverine as you're getting here not to do it. If, if when it comes down to it, you're not, you know, you're not going to continue to do it because he's like, she shouldn't even come in with me. She should wait mm-hmm. outside because she's not going to help me do this. And then yep. she does come inside and then doesn't stop him. I think she ends up being the voice of everybody who, who wants to, echo that morality but when it comes right, right down to it knows that what he's doing actually is probably at least worth giving a try because you know that things are pretty terrible back home right now and so yeah i i i also think that you know it's not just that she doesn't say anything but over the years the the invisible woman has been underrated by a number of villains and many of them sort of regret that she's actually a very powerful character uh, because of the ability right. to, she's not just invisible. She's got the force bubbles and the ability to do a lot of other stuff. So if she'd wanted to get in the way, she probably could have done more than just try and talk him out of it too. So, yeah, it's, yeah. I, I think that was an interesting addition to the whole thing. It added a level of depth to the story, I think, because I think it makes, I think it's too easy, and and like even if. He goes and does the thing and they come back and things are worse, right? It, it's still just sort of, it's just sort of, yeah, yeah, of course, that's just kind of how the story goes. But I think, I think there's this moment as you're like leading up to this initial encounter where you're like, I don't know what's actually going to happen. Is this going to be just this simple Wolverine's going to walk right in and basically just slaughter Hank Pym or, or is smarter you know cooler heads going to prevail and are they going to come to a different solution than this and 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 so i think it it ended up making the the story a lot more interesting uh conversely Mm -hmm. it's interesting because when wolverine goes back the second time and is talking himself out of killing hank pym it's really interesting as well because after they go through and they make this decision as to what's what the what the next attempt is going to be this the this self-replicating virus that that is going to get activated at some future date uh it's interesting because you basically have two wolverines standing looking at each other talking to each other and like after they're done they're like well we can't have two wolverines and one of them ends up killing the other one and and like it's the one that has seen the future, the changed future of Hank Pym being being uh, you know ki- killed and and everything bad that's happened. And he's like, I can't, I can't unsee everything I've seen. I can't live with this. And so he asks the other Wolverine to kill him. And and so it's it's. There's depth to this story that beyond just, I think, what you would think it would be just based on 
uh, on like the recap and and what you would expect mm -hmm. by by hearing what happened. Yeah, it's also interesting. Love to see what happened in that cave because Wolverine is pretty much unkillable. So I don't know what he knows about what you've got to do to kill Wolverine that nobody else does. Right. But he's come back from like a fingernail and stuff like this. So the, the idea that that other Wolverine's actually dead seems very strange to me. But maybe maybe he's got a way. Um, this all, by the way, also brings up one other thing I find very interesting. And that's that in the end, this sort of becomes almost like a, a what a wonderful life kind of story where Hank Pym is the center. Like, what happens if you take this one guy and remove him from the Marvel Universe, right? And right. it's even referenced by the future Iron Man at one point, where after he's seen that whole future that was in Wolverine's head and then seen the terrible future with Morgan Le Fay that he's living in, he's like, can can one man, you know, can, can one man being there or not really make this much difference in the world? And he's just kind of astonished by that. Yeah. But that's the weird thing is that Hank Pym becomes that sort of fulcrum where for good or for ill, he has to be there. And the weird thing is, if you just let him do what he wants, he wrecks the world. If you remove him, the world gets wrecked. The only way you can do this is just sort of have him in this weird contained thing somewhere in the middle. Right? Yeah. But he even talks about it himself, you know, that idea of he'd made the Pym Particles, but then after that he'd never really made his mark the way that, say, Mr. Fantastic had or the way that Iron Man had. You know, there's, there's all these geniuses in the Marvel Universe, and some of them it works for and some it doesn't. And Bruce Banner and he are sort of on the it-didn't-really-work-out-so-well-for-them side of the super genius thing. You know, but yeah, yeah I, I found it, I found it really kind of cool that it, for a character who's had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of ups and downs in their, in their career, both within the universe and within fandom, this is kind of a re-examination of Hank Pym to sort of reset yeah. that character. Yeah. It, very, very well done, actually, I think. And Mm -hmm. overall i really i like i said i really liked these books i think this was there was the the thing that i would say is this obviously is very different than the mcu version of ultron that we're going to be seeing and talking about next week but at the same time there were some similarities there that 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 i think you know you could see where some of these pieces were pulled and 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 how how they arrived at where they arrived uh, for the MCU version, absolutely. I think I think there's a lot of things that are pulled from it, but in very different ways. Without giving too much away, I mean, time travel is not an element in the Age of Ultron movie, you know. So they they've taken a bunch of that out. Hank Pym is not a part of the Age of Ultron movie, so we're going to see a number of changes. I think they were done pretty effectively, and in the end. I think Ultron remains, at a fundamental level, an artificial intelligence created by well-meaning Marvel characters 
which almost immediately turns into this super, you know, intelligence that really just wants to destroy all human beings, sees us as a real problem. Yeah. And the movie actually, in many ways, does it much better. The movie, yeah. Ultron is, you know, you, you, get a, you get a pretty good idea what's on his mind in that movie and why he does the things he does. Ultron in the comics has kind of always just been, I really hate my creator and all the people who look like him. And I want to kill them all. You know? Uh-huh. So, yeah. Anyway. Right. I think that that's going to wrap it up for us. We The look ahead for next week is Avengers Age of Ultron, the movie from 2015. I have not seen it recently. I would say it seems like it's on cable fairly regularly, uh, but I I don't uh, I have not seen it in some time. So it is it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's it's definitely there are some folks who like it more than others do. It's got some detractors and it's got some folks who really enjoy it. But I think that when it first came out, I enjoyed it and. I watched it once again a couple of years ago. I thought it was still still pretty decent. There are there are warts on it and there are some things we'll need to talk about, which is good because we'll have we'll have time to do that next week. So there you go. Right. And with that, that's going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. If you're new to this podcast or you've been with us since the beginning, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Please send us an email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com, or you can reach out to us via social media. We're on Twitter at comicsovertime. Dan, it was great getting kind of the origins of the next big bad in the Avengers series. Uh, there's some similarities. There's definitely some differences. I feel like I have a lot more context going into the film than I had the first time. And I'm very excited to watch the film and then come talk about it with you. Yep. It's going to be fun. Looking forward to it. We will uh, take a few days, watch a movie and come back and talk about it. We'll see everybody, I guess next week. Right. Until then, take care everybody.